Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. This is the fifth installment in Pathways Home, our series on research into the causes of and solutions to homelessness. Our guest this time is Jay-Z Zhao to talk about a study she ran in Vancouver, BC, which provided a one-time unconditional cash transfer of $7,500 Canadian to people experiencing homelessness and compared their outcomes to a control group receiving typical homelessness interventions. One of the ideas behind a lump sum payment is that it might help people get out of survival mode and free them to think about their longer term future or to make big purchases like a car or a security deposit on a rental that they need to get back on their feet. Jay-Z and her colleagues tested that theory and a few others. They found that the lump sum cash transfer dramatically reduced the time people spend in shelters and increased their days in stable housing compared to usual treatment, and recipients did not, on average, increase their spending on temptation goods like drugs, cigarettes, and alcohol. They did spend a lot more on durable goods, rent, food, and transit. The researchers also found that the savings from reduced shelter use was enough to fully offset the $7,500 payment, meaning a well-targeted program has the potential to save the government money. Over the next hour, we will get into those results, findings from a survey testing how public opinion is affected by different messages about this intervention, and what comes next for this area of homelessness research. Before we get to the interview, a quick rundown on the remainder of the Pathways Home series. In our next episode, we'll be talking with Tim Aubrey about a major study testing the effectiveness of the Housing First model for assisting chronically homeless individuals. And I can now share that our seventh episode will feature a conversation with Monica Diaz and Sean Liu, the Executive Director and Director of Communications, respectively, for the Veteran Homeless Programs Office at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. We'll be talking to them about how the U.S. managed to cut veteran homelessness by more than half since 2009, even as overall homelessness has not really budged nationwide. And finally, we are adding yet another episode to this series. In the last episode, the really last episode, we will be summarizing the main takeaways from this series of conversations and some of the concepts, insights, and messages that really stuck with us. If there's anything you want to make sure that we cover or any burning questions you want answered, send them my way at shanephillips at ucla.edu. The Housing Voice Podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies with production support from Claudia Bustamante, Gavin Carlson, and Jason Suteja. Again, you can send comments and questions to shanephillips at ucla.edu. With that, here's our conversation with Jay-Z Zhao. Jay-Z Zhao is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology and the Institute for Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia, and she's here to discuss her research on the impact of one-time unconditional cash transfers of $7,500 Canadian on the lives of homeless people in Vancouver, BC. Jay-Z, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thanks for having me, Shane. And my co-host today is Mike Manville. Hey, Mike. Hey, great to be with both of you. So as always, we start our show by asking our guests to give us a tour of somewhere they know and maybe even love, often the place they live now, uh, or maybe a hometown. Urbanist or housing-related stops are welcome, but not necessary. Jay-Z, where would you like to take us and our listeners? 
sure, I can talk about Vancouver. I don't know. This is British Columbia. Vancouver, not Washington. <laughs> Vancouver. Your Vancouver is more interesting than ours. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been here 10 years. I love the city. We do have a housing crisis, and that's something I don't enjoy. But the city is beautiful. It's vibrant. I love the food culture here. I really enjoy where I live. I invite people to visit if you can. In the summertime, it's the best season of the year. Don't come in the wintertime. It's just depressing and raining and cold. So between May and August, I think that's the best time. So the article we're discussing today was published this year in August in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and it's titled Unconditional Cash Transfers Reduce Homelessness. We do love a declarative title on this show. Your co-authors on this were Ryan Dwyer, Anita Pelipu, Claire Williams, and Daniel Daly-Grafstein. The study was a cluster randomized controlled trial in which 50 unhoused adults in Vancouver were provided a one-time unconditional cash transfer of $7,500 Canadian, and they were compared to a group of 65 unhoused people who did not receive a cash transfer but still received other support services uh, that we'll talk about. The results of this study were that over a one-year period, cash recipients spent fewer days, many fewer days, homeless, increased savings and spending with no increase in spending on what are known as temptation goods, things like alcohol and drugs, and likely actually saved the government money because of reduced shelter use. Something I personally love about this study is that it was paired with public opinion research, and it revealed two important findings. First, perhaps unsurprisingly, the general public tends to be skeptical of unhoused people's ability to manage money effectively, and they significantly overestimate how much money will be spent on temptation goods. Second, support for cash transfer policies increases when people are presented with evidence showing that most spending goes toward things like rent, food, and clothing, and that cash transfers can save the government money that would otherwise be spent on shelters. As Dr. Zhao and her colleagues acknowledge, and we will no doubt talk about, there are also limitations to what cash transfers can accomplish, or at least what this relatively small study can tell us about the impacts of cash transfers, but it is very promising research, and so we're excited to talk about it in some detail here. Jay-Z, to start off, it would be great to hear about your motivation for this research project and your team's motivation. As with a lot of homelessness research, most of your team has a background in psychology and medicine, so I think you approach the subject from a somewhat different perspective than urban planners or housing researchers like us. And with respect to the intervention itself, what did you imagine that a large one-time unconditional cash transfer might achieve that smaller transfers or in-kind assistance like rent vouchers that we commonly use might not achieve. What did prior research have to say about that? Yeah, so we actually came into the study with very low expectations. Mm -hmm. um, this is actually reflected in our pre-registrations. We actually didn't think that the cash transfer will help people get into housing necessarily uh, because of the housing crisis in Vancouver. We have a very low vacancy rate. Our rent is really high. So we thought, you know, $7,500 is a big chunk of money, but it's it's still not large enough in the context of Vancouver. So that's why we actually, when we pre-registered our uh, study, we only predicted that maybe the cash will make people feel better. So this is the increases in subjective well-being. 
as in a lot of past studies on cash transfers have shown, uh, we also predicted that it may increase cognitive function, as my past research has shown. We actually didn't even talk about housing in the pre-registration. So, I mean, there are reasons why we opted for one time versus regular, like monthly payments, as some basic income studies have done. And the reason is we think the the one-time cash transfer might put people into long-term planning mode where they might think more strategically about how to spend it as opposed mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. monthly payments that will be a lot smaller or just help them firefight every month, maybe getting food, buying necessities. Right. Just enough to get by, essentially. Exactly. Instead of allowing them to actually move into housing and pay deposit, rent, furniture, mm-hmm. et cetera. And even think about, you know, finding employment, returning to education, those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, we did measure all of these things, but we just didn't think that this 7,500 would be large enough to enable that. That was our low expectations going in. Mm-hmm. So one important caveat about this study that we should note early on is that you looked at a relatively high-functioning subset of the unhoused population. Only 31% of the people initially screened ended up being eligible, and then only about half of those participated in the study. So to the extent we can generalize these findings to a broader unhoused population, it should be to people with similar backgrounds and characteristics. Could you say a bit about your screening process and criteria and the reasons for those fairly selective criteria? What were you looking for? Yeah, we chose the sample uh, for many reasons. The, the, the biggest reason is to mitigate any risks to our participants from the cash transfer. And this is actually you know, coming from UBC Ethics Board. We actually spent six months getting approval for, for the study. Because no such study has been done in the past with this kind of transfers with individuals in homelessness, I think the, the bottom line is to ensure participant safety and ensure there's no harm of our cash transfer. This is why we opted for the higher functioning subset, and we screen people based on several criteria. One is substance use. So we screen people without severe levels of substance use. So they can still use with light to moderate levels, just not severe. By severe, I mean we have a threshold in the questionnaire, in this clinical questionnaire that we administer so they just cannot exceed that threshold. Mm-hmm. And just to be explicit about this, this is about concerns about overdosing, essentially. Yeah, potentially. Um, even though this concern is not warranted because you don't need $7,500 to overdose. You need 10 bucks to overdose. Mm, true, yeah. Um, yeah. So this is kind of just to make, I think, ethics committee feel at ease. And again, we want this study to succeed as since this is the first one out there. We opted for, you know, no severe levels of substance use. Then we also had other criteria like alcohol use as well, um, mental health symptoms. So these are all measured by validated tools that have been used in this population in the past. And again, we have certain thresholds for selection or screening. So as you said, collectively, 31% of these people was passed. You know, this is a low rate. It's only, a, you know, less than a third of the broader unhoused population. But it's it doesn't necessarily suggest that this approach will only work for these people. And the reason I'm saying that is we're actively running an expansion project. So we're basically scaling this approach to include more people. So in this case, 400 people in the expansion. And we're more than halfway through this, this expansion. And our screening rate 
this time is actually 80%. So I think it's hard to say that, you know, take the screening rate as a representation. And the, the reason is it really depends on where you go to find these people. So in this initial po、uh, project, we went into shelters. We only visited shelters to recruit people. And the shelter population is actually only a, a subset of you know, the broader unhoused population. And they tend to be lower functioning in general because they're usually you know, living on the street and then they move into the shelter and then run back to the street. So they, they tend to experience episodic homelessness. Whereas in the expansion project that we're running right now, we're actually recruiting people from the so called hidden homeless population. So those are folks. That are couch surfing, that are living in their cars, you know, they are not in shelters,、um, but they're still homeless based on the definition of、uh, homelessness in Canada. So they tend to be higher functioning, and that's why the screening rate is a lot higher now. So it's, it's I'm not going to generalize based on this small study that we ran first. I think it really depends on the homeless population, broadly speaking. and Which subset you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's important context to know that it's sort of a high functioning or, or strict thresholds、um, within the, the sheltered homeless population, but、mm -hmm. that that population itself often has more barriers to getting back into stable housing than some other, at least,、uh, homeless populations like those living in their vehicles, for example. So, in terms of these interventions, you initially had two treatment groups and two control groups. Can you just tell us about what those groups looked like?、Uh, this was not clear to me in the article, but just before this recording, we were talking a bit about the controls and how even they were receiving some support. And so, In a way, I think this kind of amplifies the impact of the cash transfer because the folks who received this cash transfer did better than folks who also were receiving kind of above average services or kind of direct supports as part of participation in this program. So, can you just talk a bit about the difference between the treatment and the control groups? Sure.、Uh, so, initially, we had four conditions to cash to control. So, there's the cash transfer group that received the, the cash transfer, but they also received. Workshop and coaching. Another group、uh, received the cash transfer, but only received the workshop and no coaching. So these are the two cash groups. The two control groups in one group, they received workshop and coaching, and the other group did not receive workshop or coaching. So these are the four groups that we initially started with. Now, everyone in the study, so this includes control and cash participants, received additional supports. Everyone received a free checking account. From the Van City, this is a local credit union in Vancouver. The motivation is we can e transfer the cash transfer to the cash recipients instead of giving them just cash in an envelope. They also received free ID replacement services. So if they didn't have an ID to start with, we would offer to replace their ID for free. So we cover that cost as well.、Uh, that's actually that cost was covered by Van City as, a, as, a, as our in kind partner on this project. Everyone received a resource booklet. So, this is a, basically a kind of a small booklet that we put together that outlined the local services and, and resources for people in our study. So, depending on where they live, they can find the health, social, or employment, or education services that they are eligible for. And finally, everybody also received a used smartphone so that we can contact them to set up follow up surveys and interviews. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and things like the checking account, I can see how you would want to you know, provide that to everyone, even to the folks who are not receiving cash transfers, just so you can be sure that any effects you observe are not just due to providing people with a checking account that they may not have been able to access otherwise, or or those ID services right. or that kind of thing. Were there other resources available to the control group just in terms of things they could normally access? Like if the local housing agency is providing housing vouchers and, and maybe there's a wait list or not everyone's eligible, but like they're still eligible for those things and probably using many of those services or resources if they can. Yeah. So everyone is still eligible for the services that they can access. I mean, this is this is an important condition to run the study in the first place because getting the $7,500 will immediately disqualify you for social and income assistance in British Columbia mm-hmm. because you, you suddenly have way too much cash. So to avoid this benefits cliff, I think this is what a lot of cash transfers face uh, in the U.S. is if you give them too much cash, then they disqualify for a lot of the services. So that's kind of a perverse incentive that they actually don't want to receive the cash transfer So to avoid that, we negotiated with the British Columbia provincial government uh, so that we actually had an exemption where all participants in our study can keep the supports, including the cash transfer, while still being eligible for income and social services. So I think this is an important condition so that we're actually not inadvertently hurting the participants by giving them cash. Yeah, it it sounds like you had a lot of negotiating to do amongst different with the ethics and the provincial authority and uh, the bank and everyone else. So I think we're ready to get into the results. We already shared a summary at the top, but let's get into the details a little bit, starting with the overall results for the whole year, focusing on where the impact was fairly large or statistically significant or both. You also had results at specific time periods within that year, but let's just start with the whole year and we can come back to those specific time periods in a little bit. Sure. So those significant results are actually from our exploratory analyses. So none of this is pre-registered. Our pre-registered analyses were only focusing on, I think, one month outcomes on subjective well-being and cognitive function. That was our very conservative expectation of of what will happen. Mm -hmm. Could you explain for the listeners what it means to pre-register? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, pre-registration is is an open science practice where you predict what's going to happen in your study before you start running the study. Mm -hmm. So this is where we, we say, oh, you know, we think that these outcomes will become significant, but those outcomes may not be. It's where we outline the variables, the measures we collect in the study, and where we think, you know, the significant results will lie. So that's purely our guess. <laughs> and uh, the, the again, our, our, our initial guesses were very wrong. Um, <laughs> I think we just based our guesses on past studies with cash transfers, but in very different contexts, mostly in developing countries with low-income villagers, so in an extremely different context from this current study, which is, you know, we're very happy we're wrong. So basically, the pre-registered results were completely null. None of the pre-registered results were significant. So this was the subjective well-being, like just how people feel about their life, that kind of stuff. The subjective well-being, cognitive function at one mm-hmm. month. Yeah, at one month after the cash transfer. 
Uh, we also, you know, compared specific groups. So compare the two cash groups with each other and the two control groups with each other to see if there's any difference due to workshop or coaching that didn't pan out. So workshop and coaching was largely ineffective. Um, so we combined the two cash group into one broad cash condition and the two non-cash group into one control condition. And this is how we did the exploratory analyses just to compare the cash participants with the non-cash participants. And so what were the kind of the headline findings there? Right. So over one year, we found that cash recipients reduced homelessness by 99 days per person on average. There was actually, you know, marginal increase in days in stable housing, even though that wasn't significant. There was significant increasing spending. Obviously, the cash recipients yeah. spent more. <laughs> One would hope. Specifically on on rent, food, transit, and durable goods, like furniture or used car. And over one year, the cash recipients relied less on social services. If we just look at shelter use uh, in particular, they actually avoided shelters, I think, as I said, by 99 days per person per year. And that led to cost savings for the government. So we calculated the cost savings. It was actually... $8,277 on average per person per year. So subtracting the cash transfer, which is $7,500, each person actually generated a net savings of $777 per year. So this, this turned out to be a net positive or a cost-effective approach compared to the status quo. Would that change a little bit if you then factored in the cost of providing the smartphone and all that? Well, we, we provided that to all participants, right? So there's no difference between cash and control group. Right. But it's the expenditure on the treated group would rise, right? Uh, no, because the baseline, the control group is still had the same amount of cost. So the only difference between the two groups is the cash transfer, right? So, so this is the cost savings was always in context with, in comparison with the cash group. The, so the 8277 figure was the difference between the cash group and the control group in their access to social services over one year. In a way, it sort of depends on whether those non-cash benefits that were provided to everyone had any impact themselves on on shelter. I mean, they certainly had a cost, but I, I see what you're saying, though. Right. Well, maybe what Mike was trying to get to, I think, was the, okay, what if, what if you include the overall costs? So not just the cash transfer, but... You know, the, all the supports that you give people, as well as even the research costs and the overhead, right, the operation costs. So when you include all of that, it's no longer cost of, you know, it's no longer net positive. But understandably, that's, that's going to happen because this project was very labor intensive. I'm not sure if this will reflect the actual costs if this were to be implemented as a government program. Yeah, and, and none of this invalidates the validity of, you know, using a cash transfer as just you know, I guess the question boils down to if this was to scale, um, and it sounds like you are trying to scale it, and that does sound very promising, to what extent is, for instance, getting someone a smartphone separable from administering a cash transfer? Because if it if it scales and you also have to add the cell phone and there's always that capital cost, then I, you know, you could imagine a government saying, well, what matters is not just how much we give the recipient in cash, but when we do a sort of net cost benefit. It's just our total expenditure. Yeah, good point. That's a very good point. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that the smartphone is necessary for the cash transfer. I mean, the smartphone was just so yeah. we could reach them to do follow-up surveys. 
So the government may not need to do that, right? Right. One answer might be this is just something that was very important in early evaluation, right? So that we could know what it did once we become comfortable that this is a, an intervention that works, that the smartphone can fade away, in which case your cost benefit starts to look much better. Right. I think that's a really important point. I mean, even the checking accounts. I think most low-income folks have a checking account, and this is also how they are able to file for taxes and get their tax returns. But our participant sample, actually, most of them didn't have a checking account or didn't even have a, a bank account. So so that's, that could be another additional cost for the government to consider is, you know, how do we even give them the cash transfer in the first place? Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's in raising this, it's not to throw any cold water on it because a lot of these interventions, I think we might in the context of this study, consider them sort of, you know, oh, it, it's not just the, the cash transfer, but they could well be on their own sort of valuable one-time expenses that we give to this population, right? Like above and beyond uh, whether you, you get a, a sort of one-time cash grant, it might be very useful that people suffering from homelessness have access to a checking account and access to a smartphone. The fact that you mention about relatively few of your participants having a checking account does raise this question for me. You mentioned earlier about the previous literature about cash transfers really being heavily focused in sort of uh, very low income countries where, you know, presumably that cash transfer that they study there when it's done in sub-Saharan Africa or places like that just represents, you know, sometimes just many multiples of what those residents would earn otherwise. Like in a year, right? Yeah, just a, 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 just a life transforming amount of money that seems very small to someone in uh, an OECD country, but is a, a, a huge change. And so I'm curious, you know, did you guys have a sense of what the magnitude of this transfer meant relative to how much uh, the typical respondent was earning beforehand? Yeah, we report that the $7,500 was about 60% of their annual income. Okay. Yeah. So still big for sure, but not the same at, to your point earlier as you know an intervention in a, a rural village in, in Kenya where you're sort of doubling someone's annual income. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and where <laughs> costs of housing, especially, are, are much lower than Vancouver, BC. Yeah, and where the entire infrastructure of needs is very different. Yeah, yeah. So if I had to guess which results got the most attention here from the media and the public, assuming you know this is, has gotten some attention, I think I read about this article, this study initially in kind of a mainstream media outlet. And so I, I imagine it's it's made the rounds a bit. But I would think that the thing that got the most attention or one of the things is that people did not increase their spending on temptation goods like drugs or alcohol. Tell me if you know that intuition is, is wrong or right, but assuming I'm on track, how do you explain that to people who, who might be skeptical about that finding? In previous episodes, in this very series actually that we're doing, we've already touched on how substance abuse and mental illness have this bidirectional causation with homelessness where these things are not just risk factors for becoming homeless or staying homeless, but also maybe triggered by or exacerbated by homelessness. It seems like even if some cash recipients may increase their spending on these kinds of temptation goods, others may be in a position now where they're able to relieve some of the stresses and traumas that they've been 
you know, enduring living in shelters or on the street and maybe less reliant on, you know, things like self-medication. Yeah, I mean, so we didn't see any increased spending on temptation goods like alcohol and drugs. And that's consistent with, you know, the vast majority of cash transfer studies in the low income, low to middle income countries. And I think we actually saw, so one of the other effects that we saw was reduced substance use severity over mm. one year. So that was marginal decline, but it was not significant. What it meant was over 12 months, actually cash recipients showed less substance use compared to the control participants. And this, I think that speaks to the point that you raised, which is people need to use or even use more when they're unhoused, right? So it, homelessness may exacerbate your substance use. And, and what we heard from our participants is that they actually need, needed to use drugs to stay warm. That's a very common reason to self-medicate because they couldn't access other mental health services. You know, so, so the only way to cope living on the street was to use substance. And I think as in many U.S. countries, Vancouver has a raging opioid crisis. And at this point, it's mostly fentanyl, which is incredibly cheap. I think it's like a dollar a pill or something at this point. So it's way cheaper than alcohol. Alcohol in Canada was is actually really expensive. And I think that seems to be the, the substance that unhoused folks resort to on the street. And moving them into stable housing actually alleviates their dependence on that. So that's what we found in this project. And it's very, I was really encouraged to, to see that result. Everything JC just said made a lot of sense to me. And it's consistent, not just with uh, this bigger literature on cash transfers, but also a bigger literature on poverty and, and experimental evidence from what poverty does to people's decision making. You know, the the sort of conservative trope about poverty is that, you know, a big contributor to it is is poor self-control, you know, and this is why you see lower income people being more likely to smoke or gamble or drink to excess or things like that. But I think a lot of the literature has has actually demonstrated that it really, a lot of it does run in the other direction, which is that when you don't have many resources, it's just harder to make good decisions. And the, the main book I think about when I think about this is, uh, it's called Scarcity by Sindil Malanathan and uh, Elder Shafir. It's an economist and a psychologist that summarize a lot of this and just demonstrate in a wide variety of ways that you know when you have a situation where virtually every situation you're in qualifies as an emergency. You know, if you have like seven hard decisions every day, you could hit the first three out of the park. And then the fourth and the fifth, you know, you have sort of a, a cognitive depletion that happens. And that one of the points they make is just that people who are relatively affluent, it, it's the sheer number of things we aren't responsible for that makes our lives easier. Like we don't, we just day to day, we just don't have that many hard decisions to make. And I think that to circle back to one of the elements of Jay-Z's and her team's research design that I really like, I think that the decision to make that one big transfer could be quite meaningful in the context of this literature, because what that allows you to do is just, if you're a, a person in these dire straits, that big chunk of cash, if necessary, could just let you solve some problems, you know, rather than here's, you know, I, I have a, I have a need that you know, to Jay-Z's point, maybe it's a, a, just putting a, a deposit down on a place. Maybe it's getting my car fixed. I have a $500 need. But if I'm getting doled out $250 a month for 12 months or something like that, 
I'm never actually going to get to the point where a huge load is taken off my mind. And, and I do think this is something that's underappreciated uh, among sort of lay people who think about this correlation between poverty and, and what we might call temptation goods or bad decision making, which is that, sure, if you make bad decisions, like the chance of a bad outcome rises, but also if you are, find yourself in a bad situation, the chance of making a bad decision goes up, a, you know, a quote unquote bad decision. I completely agree with what Mike just said. Um, Eldar and Sandra were actually my PhD advisors. So I did, I did, the scarcity work was, was a big chunk of my PhD work. That was over oh. 10 years ago. <laughs> How about um, that? Well, they wrote a great which book. Which is why I, I, you know, put the cognitive function in there. Huh. What we saw with the cognitive results was actually, there was a transient improvement at three months right, in the right. recipients. It was not sustainable over long term. And there are many reasons for that. One is that data, if you look closely at the month by month data, they are really noisy. And the reason being, we ran these surveys and interviews with participants on a tablet. And those images flash quickly. So those cognitive tests are not designed for people in homelessness or poverty. They're designed for mostly undergraduate students in psychology who are familiar with the computers. And so those are all computerized tests and they don't work very well for our sure. participants because our participants couldn't see on the screen or they were not familiar with this interface. So we actually couldn't, we didn't even have a lot of data from the cognitive measurements, unfortunately, because of that. And uh, I, just, I just think that tool was not great. The, the implementation of, of that tool was not great for our participants. So, I mean, that also speaks that we need to develop more appropriate measurements for this population. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an, I hadn't thought of that, but that, is a, that would be a legitimate limitation for sure. Yeah, we just, we just didn't have enough data for these uh, measures. But yeah, I think that we have a lot of stories or qualitative data from our participants that we didn't include in this paper. So the common theme in their response was this transfer was life-saving, even though it was small in the context of Vancouver, they thought that was their one chance to get out of homelessness. This is their one chance to, to actually do something and get their life back on track. So a lot of them said that this actually gave me peace of mind. I got into housing and now I can properly make decisions. So this is exactly verbatim what our participants told us after getting the cash transfer. Yeah. So on that subject, actually, you know, something that stood out to me is how the positive effects for people receiving cash transfers mostly diminished to non-significance, statistically speaking, by the 12th month. I think that could be misinterpreted as the transfers having no effect. But obviously, that's not the case because we just talked about the treatment group spending an average of 99 fewer days homeless and 55 more days in stable housing. So what does it mean that the outcomes for the treatment and control group were broadly similar by the end of the first year, even if, you know, the, the cumulative outcomes were quite different? How do we think about those two different ways of measuring this? And, and what do you think explains this convergence at these specific time points as, as the study went on? Yeah. So what happened was the cash group got into housing much faster than the control group. So if you're in a homeless shelter in Vancouver, you're put on a wait list for transitional housing for six months. So you have to wait six months to get into housing. That's typically the, the average of the wait. But cash recipients move into housing even within one month. Mm -hmm. Actually, more than half of them move into stable housing within one month. So that's where the, the, the savings, the fewer days homeless came in. 
And then the cash participants actually remained housed. It's not that they went back to housing after they spent the money. Back to homelessness. Back to, sorry, homelessness, yeah. So most people spent the money after six months. I mean, $7,500 wasn't, again, wouldn't sustain you after a couple months in Vancouver, given the high living costs. And they actually were able to stay housed over 12 months. And the reason was they actually worked more hours, they got higher paying jobs, etc. So that's how they, they're able to sustain their income or livelihood after the initial transfer. And then after six months, you know, the control group caught up. Right? So they, they moved into housing and are no longer in the shelter. This is why later, especially after six months, the two groups, uh, the difference between the two groups disappeared. So when you average that over one year, the overall effect was much weaker than the initial couple months of the cash transfer. That makes sense. Just a, a quick follow-up, I don't mean to get us off track, but when folks did move into stable housing, you guys have a, a sense, I think be, our listeners would love to know where, where respondents tended to end up. Is this, did they mm. manage to lease up on their own in really inexpensive places? Were they able to just kind of put some money toward crashing with some friends or, or what in general, if any patterns did you notice? So for the cash recipients, most of the time they spend in stable housing was in apartment rentals. That's mm. 74% of the recipients. So that meant they moved into actually market housing and they tend to share the apartment with roommates. Sure. So that's the type of home or housing they moved into. Now, 17% moved into single room occupancy units. So these are mm -hmm. affordable social housing units. They are much smaller and the rent was cheaper. The quality is less uh, good than apartment rentals, but it's still stable housing. So that's where the cash recipients went. Yeah. Yeah, the, the fact that the effects of the cash transfer had dissipated by month 12 sort of makes me think that instead of thinking about this policy necessarily as a way to reduce homelessness, maybe we should think of it as a way to relieve suffering as people get back on their feet and, you know, potentially save money on government expenditures in the process. I don't think that's the only way to see this, but you know, even if folks end up in pretty much the same place by, you know, the end of the year, the ones who received the cash transfers spent more than three fewer months homeless during that time, on average, and the cost to the government was essentially the same. So that strikes me as a win, even if it isn't a permanent solution by itself. And, you know, it, it's worth mentioning that the effects at month 12 were still mostly in the positive direction. Uh, the kinds of outcomes we would want to see for that cash transfer treatment group. They just were not as strong as they had been in earlier months and had lost their statistical significance. So it seems entirely possible that a larger future study could reveal stronger or more statistically significant and, you know, maybe potentially more durable effects as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to come back to the cost here a bit. As you shared, the annual savings on shelter costs was about $8,200 per person in the treatment group compared to a cost of the cash transfer of $7,500. That's clearly really great news. And so, you know, I just want to complicate that a bit in actually both directions. So in the maybe we're undercounting the benefits category, it seems like there are probably other savings besides shelter costs, such as reduced visits to emergency rooms or fewer interactions with law enforcement, which, 
you know, these are things that tend to be major costs associated with homelessness, certainly here in, in the U.S., and so I'm curious to hear how you approach that. You do have something about service costs, but I feel like it's not as emphasized in the study, or at least in the write-up. And then in the maybe we're overcounting category, I'm wondering, you know, there's a lot of different ways to measure shelter costs. And I had a few things noted down here, but one I'll just focus on is if you have a shelter with capacity for 50 people and now you have less demand for shelters and you're only using 40 beds, like does the cost really fall by 20% or is a lot of that cost essentially fixed? So you're not necessarily saving as much money there. And then also the study found that the cash transfer recipients spent 99 fewer days homeless, but not necessarily 99 fewer days in shelter. That was my reading of it anyway. And so maybe those costs wouldn't have been incurred. I understand these are all difficult things to measure or to answer with any certainty, but I thought they would be worth a little bit of discussion just to really, if anything, underscore the complexity of these systems and how many nuances and, and caveats and complications come up when we're trying to do these kinds of analyses. Yeah, that's a very good point. We did measure costs or services beyond just shelter use. Mm -hmm. uh, we looked at their hospital visits, police encounters, court appearances, nights in jail, et cetera, et cetera. So ambulance visit, uh, 911 calls, you know, all of that. And when we included all the services they accessed over 12 months, uh, the numbers were a little lower than the just the shelter use, as you can see from our figure, but it was still, it's still positive. It's still significantly higher than the cash, uh, the control group. So the cash group still used less overall than the control group. The you know, number was actually a little smaller than 80 uh, to 77. The reason being, we had a couple of mothers in the cash group that gave birth after the cash transfer. That resulted in more hospital stays for these women, whereas the control group actually didn't. This is just purely by chance. Yeah, yeah. And especially when you have a small sample. Exactly. And then each night in the hospital in Vancouver was, you know, $1,000. So mm -hmm. when you count up just like three nights or four nights, uh, that sort of just reduced the, the savings from shelters a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. People here in the U.S. Are, are crying at hearing that it was only $1,000 a night. <laughs> and it's all free. So by, sorry, what I mean, they, they all didn't yeah. have to pay out of pocket. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's that sounds very much, as you indicated, like the idiosyncrasy of a small sample. Um, you know, I, I do think that the shelter costs are probably in some ways the most intuitive and predictable costs that we think about when when someone is unhoused. But, you know, at the tails, it is these medical emergencies like you could just as easily imagine someone who didn't get the cash having a, a, an accident or a medical emergency and that they're in the hospital for four days and the cost in the control group spikes. And I just think those are, they're a little bit harder to predict a priori, but they're absolutely, they're huge costs of having a, a large unhoused population. And I think the other thing that's just very hard to measure is the well-being, mental well-being of, of people who worry about homeless people. And then sometimes that's, you know, uh, neighbors who just, they worry about their neighborhood because there's a lot of uh, uh, homeless people there. But I think even more to the point, it's the, the family members of people who know that they have family who are on the street or on the verge of being on the street. And, and 
it takes a toll on them to know day in and day out that like, well, I'm not exactly sure where my brother is. I don't know if he's okay and things like that. And uh, in the grand scheme of things, a relatively small expenditure of money that puts that person under a, a stable roof is, of course, first and foremost, of huge benefit to that person. But it does have ricochet effects that reverberate a, a, around a lot of other people that are very hard to sort of put into dollar terms. Uh, but I think if you ever talk to anybody who who has a relative or a close friend who struggles with with staying housed, I mean, they're, they're real benefits. This is what we call the spillover effects, as yeah. Mike, Mike just mentioned. Those are very hard to quantify, especially if it's just psychological measures like worry or concern. We did look at some spillover effects with spending. So Again, as I mentioned, there are mothers with dependents in our in our sample, and then for those participants, they actually spend a lot more money on their children mm. and not not on themselves. So I think that's that's the kind of the benefit of the cash transfer, the spillover to their family members. Right, and and I do think you know it's absolutely the case that uh, the psychological benefits are very hard to quantify, and I, I would hesitate to try and put them in a paper with a, a hard number as well. I, I think though. Maybe to go back to Shane's point about the easing of suffering, you know, any of our listeners could just imagine if you had a, a close family member who, who, you know, struggled with an illness for a year, like you would probably spend that whole year worrying about them. And, and if there was some treatment that let them get better three months earlier, right? The amount of, you know, fine, you have a hard time putting a dollar amount on it, but I think all of us would understand like, wow, like that would be a huge benefit to everyone around this person. And I think it's similar in many respects to saying, well, you could, you got this person into a, a more stable housing situation three months earlier. Those are, are going to be fairly substantial benefits for the, the folks who care about that person. Mm -hmm. So in the results, you found positive effects for some outcomes and no effect for others. But in one area, you found a negative effect or impact for the cash recipients relative to the control group. And that was in social connection. Can you talk about that? Sure. That was an unexpected uh, negative result. And that only showed up, let me just be very clear here, the social connection showed up at nine months where the cash recipients mm -hmm. felt less connected socially than the control group. I think, again, there are several reasons for this. One is by nine months, they already moved into a new community, new environment. Most of them are not no longer talking to their old friends and people that they know in the shelter. So I think they felt lonelier at that point, whereas the control group probably didn't have to move that big of a change or move that far or their life didn't change substantially. So that could be one reason. Another reason is before we gave them the cash transfer, we actually asked the participants to carefully think about how to keep this news safe or how to keep themselves safe from potential assaults, thefts, targeting from others. So a lot of them actually chose not to tell anybody but one or two of their confidants, right? So about the cash news. So you can, as you can imagine, this is not a, I mean, even though this is great news for themselves, but this is not something that they want to broadcast. Mm -hmm. So they have to keep that news to themselves for a long time. And I think that also, that may have contributed to this lower social connection uh, feeling. Yeah, that's uh, super interesting. And looking at the table of information about the demographics of both the treatment group and the control group, these were folks who on average had been homeless in their current instance of homelessness, an average of about 20 to 30 weeks. 
and had spent a total time homeless, you know, of almost two years and had been homeless multiple times. And so I think there's this is a group who maybe had a lot of connections in many cases to other unhoused people. And so that might have become their community in in many ways, whereas you might expect something a little bit different for folks who are more newly homeless and receiving, they, they wouldn't necessarily need this kind of lump sum payment. But if they were to receive some kind of intervention, the intervention actually might allow them to retain their social connection with other, you know, housed friends and family. Just to add to that, uh, it's that that is not a, a sort of a threat to validity that would have occurred to me un, until Jay Z mentioned it, but it is it makes sense. I mean, it's both the the security concern, but also you can just imagine uh, to Shane's point, like you have a bunch of friends and you don't want to trigger envy or resentment in them, probably in some situations for for having uh, come by this windfall. And, uh, and that's a very human reaction. And so obviously, uh, it's a, a net benefit to have the resources as opposed to not have them. But for any of us, regardless of our socioeconomic status, anything that sort of threatens to upend our relationships with other people is a source of turmoil for us. Yeah, I would love to see a study on that, just that subject more broadly with homelessness, you know, because I'm sure the same thing applies just to getting, you know, a housing voucher or placed in supportive housing, that kind of thing for folks. And and then probably, again, like more of a, an issue for people who have been homeless longer. Moving on to you had a few other kind of smaller studies about this research that are not just about policy, but really politics in a way uh, by way of public opinion. So we all know that politics and public opinion play a big role in determining which policies get implemented and public opinion about homelessness in particular is rife with misconceptions and misunderstandings. And our first two episodes in this series with Greg Colburn and Margot Cushell are really about addressing a lot of those misconceptions because they can be a real barrier to implementing solutions or at least effective solutions. So in this article, you have two other studies aimed at addressing the public's views on unhoused people and their expectations about how an unhoused person would spend money that's granted to them unconditionally, and then testing how people's support for cash transfers is influenced by different messages about your research findings. Could you summarize those two studies and what you found with them? Sure. The reason that we looked at public perception of cash transfers is to figure out ways to increase public support for potential policies going forward. And this is because I'm, I've been working with policymakers very closely on enacting policy change at a government level to enable programs like this to, to benefit more people in homelessness or in poverty more generally. Uh, so what we found from these two studies was, one, that the public actually don't trust people in homelessness in their ability to manage money. So we describe our study to people, this is people in the U.S. Uh, from the U.S. public. We describe our project where we gave, you know, $7,500 one time to people in homelessness, but they have no, you know, severe levels of substance use, alcohol use, and psychiatric symptoms. So just like in our study, and we asked them to predict how much money do you think they were spent on alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes every month? And we describe the recipient as somebody who's homeless or who's not homeless, somebody who's yourself, homeless or not. So we had different kind of descriptions of that recipient. And what we found was people think that if, it's, if this is someone who's homeless, then they will spend a lot more money. Actually, I think almost double the amount of money 
than if somebody who's not homeless or is themselves. So that difference is sort of capture reflects the the amount of mistrust that the public have toward people in homelessness and how they manage money. So that's what I suspected all along. Um, whenever I present this study to people in public or policymakers, the first response is, "No, why would you do that? They would just squander it on drugs." Our study shows the opposite, right? There was no increase in temptation goods spending, and yet people think that recipients will spend more money on alcohol and drugs. So we, we again, we ran another study where this is again recruiting people from the U.S. public, where we said we ran this cash transfer study with people in homelessness. This is what the study showed. So we said there was no increase in spending on temptation goods. And actually, the cash transfer led to net savings for society because of the reduced use on social services, and cash recipients actually spend more money on rent, food, clothing, etc. So we found that framing the cash transfer or the benefits of the cash transfer in a utilitarian way, like the cost-saving way, significantly increased public support for a cash transfer policy. So the the utilitarian aspect of the cash transfer. Helped people support the policy more, and another framing was the counter stereotype frame, which is no increased spending on temptation goods, but rather increased spending on rent, food, and transit, and all that. That also increased public support for cash transfer policies. So that's kind of a our motivation to include that perception piece、uh, in addition to the cash transfer itself. This is actually a debate we had the re- with the reviewers of this paper, who said, "Why don't you just focus on the paper on the cash transfer study and remove the opinion, you know, public perception studies?" So the reviewers thought it was not necessary to include the public perception studies, and I had to kind of fight back and say, "We could easily remove the two studies. That's not a problem." But That would diminish the impact of the paper, especially when when it comes to you know communicating with public policymakers,、um, how to move policy forward. Right, like it's it's one thing to know that the policy itself is effective in these different ways. It's another to know whether that actually persuades the public to support the policy in any way. That's right. I mean, that's what kind of the, what pub,、uh, policymakers asked us specifically.、Mm-hmm. Like, okay, we love your results, but how? You know, how do I use it to, to convince my colleagues who are against this policy? So that's that's the helpful piece for them, and I think that that actually has changed a lot of people's minds to know, oh wow, this is what you found, and this is what people thought, and this is how you can sort of mitigate that gap. So yeah, I, I thought you know I, I thought this combination of the three studies is probably going to be the most impactful. And actually, I don't know if you know that in Canada, we at the federal level, we are actively studying or discussing this、uh, basic income bill.、Uh, it's actually,、mm. you know, it's a cash transfer to to people in poverty, and I think knowing the results of this study actually helps policymakers a lot. Yeah, I mean, and and I think the inclusion of those two studies also just functions as an important backdrop for the experiment itself.、Um, it, it sort of it gets at kind of the motivation for it. And the obstacles that proposals like this face, you know, certainly in the United States, we have this long history of our welfare state being,、um, you know, pretty paternalistic and sort of systematically underestimating the extent to which people find themselves in dire circumstances out of bad luck. And I think that's it's it's a it's an underappreciation of that fact that leads the typical 
Amazon Mechanical Turk, you know, survey respondent to say, well, of course they're going to use more drugs and use more alcohol. I mean, you, I guess we don't know for sure. They might be just saying to themselves, my goodness, they have to self-medicate because they're homeless. But I strongly suspect that the typical respondent is saying, well, you know, that they wouldn't be homeless to begin with if they weren't irresponsible. So you can't just give them money. And of course, right, it would be wrong to say that that's categorically never correct. Uh, but I do think that a story that runs through American and perhaps Canadian social services as well is just a, an underestimation of the, the extent to which people can find themselves in very bad circumstances through a few bad breaks. And it's not because they don't know how to manage money well compared to the typical person or don't know how to discipline themselves compared to the typical person. They really just don't, uh, as you mentioned in the first paragraph of your article, they just don't have any money. And having a little bit more money would just would be a, a huge boost. Yeah, that also speaks to the scarcity point. It's that it's yeah. really just a lack of money and not a lack of character or abilities. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, it's just, I think this is an important point in general. I mean, if I just look around my university, there's plenty of people walking around who I'm pretty sure don't manage their money very well. And they, I know for a fact they don't manage their time very well. And they're not the most disciplined people on earth. And I fall into some of these categories. The difference is just that like, they all have a pretty good paycheck. And so uh, these little errors in judgment are, are just sort of intrinsically forgiven. And that's uh that's not true when you're one step above the street or when you're on the street. And, and so that, you know, one of the great arguments for a cash transfer is like you get to that point where there's just a, a few fewer crucial, you know, monumentally important decisions in everyone's day. That's right. I do want to clarify that there were some differences in how effective those two messages were. The, you know, unhoused people do not increase their spending on temptation goods versus the it saves government money to actually provide these cash transfers. So the it saves government money message was actually, I think it increased support about twice as much as the the other message. Is that roughly correct, Jay-Z? No, so the, there was a marginal difference between the two messages, not significant. Um, and I, it's not not quite twice as much. It's like a, so the public support, sorry, policy support is measured on a scale from one to five. The utilitarian message had the strongest support of 3.95 out of this five point scale. Whereas the counter stereotype uh, message had a slightly lower support. So 3.78. So it's a little lower, but not, not too bad. Yeah. And the baseline was around 3.5 or so. So it was actually- The baseline 3.5. Yeah. Fairly yeah. high. Surprisingly high to me, baseline support, um, but yeah. both. So, well, three is neutral, right? So three okay. is like one is strongly opposed, five is strongly support, three is neutral. So most people are like just a little bit, a little bit more supportive than neutral. Okay, got it. So last question here, you know, what is next for the study of unconditional cash transfers as a tool for reducing homelessness or, or at least reducing suffering during homelessness? You mentioned a little bit about where you're going with this, but is there anything else you want to share and, and also anything you wish you had done differently in this first project? <laughs> There's so many things I wish many I would things. have done differently. <laughs> um, so we're actively expanding this project to, to include more people with a larger transfer mm. so that, as you said, we're actually increasing the, the, the cash amount. But now we, we've literally reduced the conditions to two, just cash versus control. That project is underway, and I can't disclose too much uh, because I don't want to influence the integrity of the study at this point. But more broadly, I, I, I do think I, I wish more projects like this can be done. 
I mean, the the other project that's actually actively ongoing is the Denver Basic Income Demonstration Project. Actually, we we uh, talked to them before they started, and we told them our lessons learned from this project. So they're actually running a very similar project in Denver with homeless people, that's people great. in in, in unhoused. They actually provide them with a larger amount of cash transfers. I think it's ten thousand dollars U.S. over one year. Mm-hmm. In a in a somewhat more affordable city as well. Less less expensive, right? So, and they're they're actually they just published their six months interim report, which I find really encouraging. They're actually they're finding bigger effects than than we did, so that's mm. great. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually had, uh, saw the biggest surprise I saw in their report was the increase in full time employment. Whereas we didn't see that in our sample. We did see increases in work hours and, and pay, but we didn't see a, you know, a significant increase in, in full-time employment. Whereas they saw that. They actually saw a 50% increase in full-time employment, wow. which was really surprising to me. I'm talking to them in, in a couple of weeks, so I, I would love to find out what they did that was so effective. <laughs> All right, Jay-Z Zhao, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, good luck on the next steps of this project. Thank you so much. It's a fascinating paper. Thanks for coming on the show. You can read more about Jay-Z's work on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The Lewis Center is on the socials. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips and Mike is there at Michael Manville 6. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks with the next installment of Pathways Home.